0: Um, you can turn now to 1st Timothy chapter 1 again. We'll return to where we picked up last week and I'm going to begin reading the verse we did last week as well and we're going to look at, um Hymenaeus and Alexander. This is a situation that no church ever likes. Um, To do church discipline, have to remove someone. It's rare that it is done today, primarily because most churches just won't do it. They don't adopt a position of church discipline. They'll just let people behave however people want to behave. Yet that becomes a bad influence for the next generation, other people who are tempted by that same type of sin. So churches must have uh, discipline procedures uh, in in their documents, in their bylaws, in their biblical theology. Uh, No one likes to use them. And as I said earlier, thankfully we haven't had to do that since I've been here. Really, in the age that we live in, most people will just leave. That's what people do now. They leave if there's anything that they don't like what's going on. But there comes points where you have to be able to have church discipline if necessary. And the Apostle Paul and Timothy ran into this in this situation. First Timothy 1, beginning in verse 18 It says, this command I trust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Well, for several weeks... We've been talking about Ephesus, the type of city that was. It was a very challenging spiritual environment for a church. In fact, it was outright satanic. There were dozens of false gods worshipped. None were more prominent than the fertility goddess Diana, also known as Artemis. And an Artemis drew worshippers from across the Roman Empire. They would come to this magnificent temple... It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis. Very satanic, the behavior that went on there. The temple even had prostitutes that they would hire. There were erotic forms of idolatrous worship. And in the pastoral letters, Paul specifically calls out by name, Satan, the devil, demons, And evil spirits no less than seven times. And that doesn't even include allusions to demonic activity that was going on. So Ephesus became a perfect illustration concerning the contrast of that sanctuary and peace experienced inside the community of believers. And that sanctuary of evil that existed outside the sanctuary of believers, in the surrounding community. Inside there was access to love, to safety, to purity, to redemption, and the gospel, into salvation. Outside was the realm of evil. Evil, the dominion of Satan. And and listen to Paul's general letter that is written to the church in Ephesus in in chapter 2. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air... Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So they're walking according to the prince of the power of the air, of Satan, before coming into the community of believers. So by comparison, Uh, to deliverance from evil experienced within the community of Christ, the domain of Satan offered a realm of spiritual deadness, of sin, worldliness, disobedience, fleshly indulgence, rebellion, and worst of all, that's fear outside of the church remains under God's wrath. So, So the church is, was, and still is a spiritual refuge from sin and its consequences. And this is still true today. You know, nearly every week, Pastor Weiler or myself will experience someone coming to the church. They're hoping to find some glimmer of hope, some deliverance. And, and we'll attempt to share the gospel with them. We will try to help them in some way in a need if we're able to do that. And, and you can look at, at them much of the time, some of the time. You look at them and it's just, they look like warmed over death. The world has just torn them apart. They've been in, in Satan's domain and it's been working them over. And, and they'll even share their experiences openly much of the time. That they've had uh, situations where they've had their money stolen from them, they've been cheated out of things, the hangovers, the addictions, having, having been sexually exploited, they've been abused emotionally and physically they will share. And not responding to the gospel, most of the time they'll turn back out and go out the door. You just wonder to yourself, why would people return to that sphere of influence? And we even think about our communities. You know, During the daytime, some parts of the communities look kind of rough. Different cities that we, that we visit look rough. Try going out late at night. In some of these places. Try going out late at night in Key West. Downtown Atlanta. Some of these other locations. I tell you, it is downright scary. And, and praise God that the Scripture assures Christians we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Imagine what Ephesus was like at night. It was utter spiritual darkness. And therefore, it's, it's no surprise that even decades later, the Apostle John himself, writing from Ephesus, we studied the book, First John, you remember a few months ago, and he employed these numerous contrasting terms, just amplifying the difference between the kingdom of God and that of Satan. And he used complete opposites. Good versus evil. Light versus darkness. Love versus hatred. Truth versus the lie. Death versus life. And of course, the difference between God and the devil. So belonging to a fellowship of genuine Christians, Christian believers, it's a safe haven from the world around us, the influence around us. And together we come, we worship. We worship in spirit, we worship in truth. We encourage one another in innumerable ways. And most important, I propose, that we learn principles from God's Word. We learn these principles from God's Word that keep us out of trouble, to be quite honest. And God's Word protects us from ourself, from the sin nature that we still attempt to deal with day in and day out. Uh, but through His precepts, through His Word, through His laws, it gives us the wisdom to say, well, you know what, I'm going to stay out of that extreme debt situation. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to show up to work on time so I don't fall behind on my obligations and on my bills. And we, we become increasingly committed to our family as we look at the Word of God. We hear the Word of God. And we remain faithful to our spouses because we hear it constantly from the Word of God when we're in the sanctuary among God's people. And the beauty of all of that is when we we lay our heads down on the pillow late at night, we sleep in peace. We're learning from God, continually adjusting our lives, hearing the truth of the Word, and we sleep in peace. And you know, we, we no longer, being transferred out of that spiritual darkness, we no longer have to worry about either the police or some other dark figure from our past knocking our door down because we did something ridiculous in a drunken stupor. We're preserved from that. We live in peace. And, and even for those people that they have lots of money, they live in penthouses. Filthy rich, if you want to call it that. Not that being rich in itself is filthy. It's what sometimes happens to people. If you, if you ever watched that Bernie Madoff special, and, and the way that he, he stole all that money he is wealthy beyond wealthy. He didn't have any peace. Always looking over your shoulder. If you're not being honest, if you're not living according to God's word, you're always having to watch out. You can't lay your head down at night just knowing, you know what, we're at peace. Our family is at peace with the world around us and with God. For the Christian, I don't know how much better life can get on this earth than being at peace. And the joy and benefit of godly living, it's so wonderful. Even if you're a Christian that can't afford a yearly vacation to go away with your family, even if you don't have that, compared to what the world is and compared to what your life used to be before conversion, life's a vacation. Just having that peace of God, Christianity is a vacation. And, and what I'm trying to make clear is that living within Christ's body, the church, I don't mean the four walls of this building, of course, but being in a Bible-believing community of Christians, living among them in fellowship, um, it's a sanctuary from the world that surrounds us. So we dare not forget that. And and we should understand that, that the Apostle Paul rightfully viewed the church as a hedge of protection, protecting us. God protects us from the world. And for that reason one of the most important things that a church has to do is be cautious not to let those things those evil things creeping around out in the world to creep inside of the church. And I don't mean things like a modern hairstyle or different types of shoes that are that are hip now or anything like that. What I mean are the things like sexual immorality, drunkenness, thievery, adultery, all those types of things that dismantle church as a sanctuary. Reason is, some of those crept in to Ephesus. Some of those creeps crept in. And there were supposed to be elders there present to stop it. Some reason they either weren't there or they wouldn't stop it. And. Uh, The Apostle warned these same elders of this same church, and if my chronology is right in determining the dates of these letters with resources, somewhere between five and seven years before this date we're reading today, he said back in Acts chapter 20 to the elders in Ephesus, "...be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood." He said, because I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among even your own selves men will arise. Think of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul continues, they'll be speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And just last week then, I posed this question, You know, what what happened to the elders that were supposed to be shepherding this church? Paul had charged them with guarding this flock. They're supposed to discern the serious threats and prevent them from becoming a problem. You know, shepherds can't just sweep the wolves under the carpet. The wolves will crawl back out from under the carpet. They'll rear their their heads eventually... So an an elder, a person who aspires to elder, at least has to have the willingness to correct. Nobody wants to go through that situation, but you have to have a willingness to step in and correct, especially in serious situations. As Paul told Timothy earlier in verse 3, you must instruct the man, we know it's command the man essentially, do not permit them to teach strange doctrines. Don't let them do it. Titus he was another young man that, that Paul had left in a very similar situation on the island of Crete, and wrote him in, in another pastoral letter we call Titus. Paul wrote in Titus chapter one, verse nine, uh, concerning those type of men who either contradict sound doctrine, or rebel, or deceive, or live ungodly and undisciplined lives, Paul says, Reprove them severely, Titus. Correct them severely. Because they, they spread like leaven once in the lump of dough. We learn in 1 Corinthians 5. It spreads. 2 Timothy 2.17 says that false doctrine spreads like gangrene. We've seen this happen over and over again in large denominations across America. Uh, one, once a sinful behavior is just blindly tolerated, and and whether it's condoned in the body itself or just among the clergy, within a few years it's going to spread across that whole denomination in the whole country, possibly even further across the world. That is what happens. Once it creeps in, it creeps all around. And this is one of the reasons we remain an autonomous Bible church. It's not that we believe we are the only church in town. Don't believe we're the only Christians around. We don't propose in any way that we're the only ones that preach the gospel. But we deal with our situations biblically and locally. Uh, We we, we gladly attend conferences with like-minded individuals. We we broadly read, Gerald and I read many different authors, those we agree with, those we disagree with, uh, a lot of literature. We're not isolationists by any means in this church. Um, but we're confident that Scripture equips and authorizes local churches to self-govern under qualified leadership. That's what we see in Scripture. We don't sit under a bishop or an archbishop that's in another state that tells all the churches what we're going to tolerate or how we're going to function now. It's one of the reasons that we remain an autonomous, independent congregation. It's a Bible-believing Christian church. So we pray, as I, as I said earlier, uh, for competent... Confident elders to step up. Confident in the Word. And elders who are willing to take the responsibility, take the blame, take the position to address problems when they erupt. And we, we honestly don't know what happened to these elders in Ephesus. You know, perhaps there was only two. It said elders, plural. Maybe there are only two, two or three one died, another moved away. We, we can't be sure. We don't know for sure. But from the tone of this letter and the emphasis Paul puts on Timothy to stand firm and fight the fight, it appears more li- likely that they buckled under uh, to the pressure from Hymenaeus and Alexander. And, and for that reason, now Paul is required to step in after returning to Ephesus. Then he leaves Timothy uh, as overseer to hold the tide when Paul had to leave again. And it's also the reason that he gave Timothy very strict standards as to the qualifications of an elder, an overseer, that we'll see in chapter 3. It's very, very similar to what Paul wrote again to Titus, whom he appointed as the overseer of the churches on the island of Crete. Titus 1 verse 4, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then Paul adds... For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city as I direct you. Then Paul writes down immediately after that in that letter to Titus, essentially the exact same criteria for elders that Paul wrote to Timothy in Ephesus. And we'll discuss those sometime in March. And and the shepherd the, the elder overseer, that role, accepts responsibilities of teaching, preaching, guiding, protecting, and correcting the flock. So, this, th- there was a void. There was a vacuum there of some kind of Ephesus that allowed Hymenaeus and Alexander to erupt. Because every church has them. We're going to find that every church has them. Every single church have people that want to, in some way, accost the church. It may sound harsh, it is a fact. Um, some are more direct in their approach. Some are more harmful than others. Some just want to take over worship. Some want to loosen the requirements for membership and make it easy. Some want to repurpose the use of the property. Some want to alter the vision and direction of the church. And then there's some, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who want to teach strange doctrines. Strange doctrines. And, and that's a really bad one, by the way. That's a bad one. That's why Paul told Titus, And us, an elder, must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. For there will be, he says, many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. Titus nine. So an elder has to know his Bible well. He needs to know sound doctrine. He must have the ability and willingness to refute those who speak against it. Because this is what Hymenaeus and Alexander were doing. They're speaking both against the church and against the church's doctrine. And that's why they were labeled as, as blasphemers here. Blasphemer doesn't exclusively take God's name in vain. That's not the only thing that it means. To blaspheme means also to speak against the church. It's a sin that Paul committed before becoming a Christian. Remember, we studied just a couple weeks ago. He was a blasphemer, he said. He spoke against the church. He persecuted the church. As Saul, uh, he stood against the church. But then Paul tells us in verse 13, he did it during a season of ignorance. He did it during a season of ignorance. It was before God the Holy Spirit had changed Saul the Pharisee's heart. He he had made no claim at that time that he was a Christian when he was blaspheming Christ and the church. By comparison to that, we've got Hymenaeus and Alexander, who'd been a part of the church for a while now. They claimed to be Christian, yet they railed against the church. They couldn't claim ignorance. And there comes a point when behavior or errant doctrine it becomes demands by people. And when demands aren't met, people will sometimes begin to revile. Then they'll verbally disparage the church. They'll accuse the membership of the church. They'll insult the leadership. One or all three of those things. That's blasphemy here in the context of of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Because Hymenaeus and Alexander had begun to successfully rebel, and there apparently were no elders present to step in, and chaos had erupted, strange doctrine had been been circulated. It's possible that Alexander the coppersmith is the same Alexander here, the one we read about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, who Paul said later on in a later imprisonment, Alexander had done much harm to him. Alexander the coppersmith. Some theologians, MacArthur leans away from that being the same Alexander. There are a couple of Alexanders in Scripture. Swindoll leans towards this being the same Alexander because Paul is is notifying them again in Ephesus that this Alexander the coppersmith has caused me much harm. Also, if he was a coppersmith... What did they make a lot of in Ephesus? A lot of idols. So it's very possible, though we don't know for certain. Hymenaeus, we do know from Second Timothy, was teaching a false doctrine that had completely upset the faith of some. And it's even possible in this whole situation that's going down here, that women were getting caught up in this whole rebellion. Look with me again at Paul's instructions in verse 19. Timothy says keep faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I've handed over to Satan so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. So the ringleaders here, Hymenaeus and Alexander had shipwrecked their faith. They had taught false doctrine. They were railing against the church. So Paul turned them out then into that domain of Satan. They were essentially excommunicated from the church. And, and why? It's because they did not keep the faith in a good conscience. They shipwrecked it. And, and most resources and commentaries that I've studied, when you look across Scripture and you see this combination of this biblical phrase, a faith in good conscience, it has moral connotations to it. They were doing things that were immoral as well. And, and if that is correct, part of Hymenaeus and Alexander's error... In doctrine resulted in immorality as well, which would definitely merit expulsion from the church. And uh, I'm going to admit this is mere speculation. I didn't find this connection made anywhere, so take heed. These are just some thoughts. Turn a couple pages with me to chapter five. First Timothy chapter five. And look at verse 11. There were some younger widows that were apparently provided some level of uh, financial assistance in return for making a pledge. Uh, The younger ones weren't actually doing what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go around and help the shut ins. They were getting some kind of assistance, we don't know what type, but they didn't keep their pledge. They didn't say what they were they didn't do what they said they would do, what they had promised the church. And instead in verse eleven, Paul says, Refuse to put the younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. Thus for thus incurring condemnation or judgment, just local judgment doesn't mean condemnation from hell. But they, they incur judgment because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Undoubtedly, probably some sensual talk, since they were feeling sensual. Paul's conclusion then, he says, Therefore, I want the younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Hymenaeus and Alexander were were handed over to Satan's domain due to doctrinal error and moral failure. And it is possible that some of the younger women, especially the younger widows, carried away by their sensual desires, followed them right back out into the streets of Ephesus. Right back out into the gutter. Can't know for sure. Just an observation. But it would be a mistake to think that it can't happen to you or happen to me. Even Timothy here is cautioned to be sure that he keeps the faith in a good conscience in verse 19. So, how many pastors today have failed to do so? How many members failed to do so? It's all over. It's in the news all the time. So, so Paul's warning here to Timothy is a true warning. It's a genuine warning. Be careful that you don't fall into the same situation, the same error that Hymenaeus and Alexander have. It's not isolated. And our first inclination as we look at this now with the discipline, we want to know, were Hymenaeus and Alexander, were they genuine believers? That's our first question, right? Were they the real deal? That's what we want to know. And there are others, there are people that would claim that, that this indicates you could potentially lose your faith. No, you can't. No, you can't. Determining their salvation is not the purpose of this passage. This is not making a, a uh, declaration of their salvation. We, we don't know if they were genuine Christians or not. Even Paul did not know whether they are the real deal or not. Apostles didn't have this always present sixth sense to know where everyone that they encountered whether or not they were truly believers. All they could do is do what we do, assess the fruit. But there are a number of lessons worth worth heeding here. And one is to warn us against getting caught up in a similar demise. Those who shipwrecked their faith, some have followed their lusts and, and were to beware not to do likewise. Because the lure is surely out there. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, describes some of these deceivers that are ready to pounce. Peter writes, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. By sensuality, Peter says, those who are barely escaped the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, liberation, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. They're caught up in the disobedience. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they escaped the defilements of the world, world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are then again entangled into them all over again, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away. False teachers will speak against the church. They will blaspheme and drag out undiscerning people with them. It's not only for sensual things. Some are doctrinal things. Some are the victims of schemes. Are they saved? Are they not saved? We don't know. We don't know. Our instruction is to beware. Beware. Second, Paul provides overseers a model of correction for those who shipwreck the faith morally and or doctrinally and those who rebel against the church. When that happens, those people either need to repent or leave. Hymenaeus and Alexander were not the only ones disrupting the early church. This was not an isolated situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a very familiar text A very familiar situation. Early on in the church of Corinth, there was sexual immorality. Early in the church. One of the first churches founded and put together. And there was obscene sexual immorality. Again, the church was unwilling to deal with it at that time. And unfortunately, on that occasion, either elders were not yet appointed, either they weren't yet there because it was an early church, or again, they didn't deal with the situation. So Paul tells them, the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth, for I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, Paul says, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. so So that his spirit... May be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So a spirit may be saved. Paul doesn't know whether he is or isn't. All he knows is the influence right now is not good for the church. It's not healthy. So you put him out. And Paul summarizes in verse 11 I wrote to you, meaning the church, not to associate with any so called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler speaking against again, or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outside, outsiders, Paul says? Those who are outside the church, God judges. But then he says, do you not judge those who are within the church? And then he summarizes, remove the wicked man from among you. It's leaven. Remove the wicked man. And, and of course... By the close of this apostolic age now that we're looking at here towards the end of it, elders are now placed into every city, the churches that are obedient to Titus 1.5, and elders have been charged with taking the lead on church discipline. They're to correct, reprove. If a person remains factious, says remove him altogether. We have to note, expulsion is not the goal. Expulsion is not the goal. The the goal first is protection of the church. Paul said earlier in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love. That's the goal. Restoration is always the goal. It's love for the brethren, that the brethren be protected from the world around. And it's the reason that the ungodly are removed is because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. So if you blindly overlook that blatant immorality that's being modeled for your youth openly for them to follow along after, you're not loving the brethren. If it's obvious, I mean, we all have our sin issues, no doubt. But when it comes to blatant immorality, it has to be dealt with. Why would you allow your children to be given that as a role model? If it spreads pretty soon, everybody will be doing it. But the discipline is not only for protection; it's also for restoration. Corrective discipline is loving because it's designed to restore the offender. That's what it's designed to do. And by being turned back out into the world, outside of the influence of the church, set away from the church, that offender now has an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work on them. See, so, did I do the right decision? Did I make that right decision leaving the church? Maybe I was part of the problem. Maybe I'm not completely innocent, they might say. And it's a time where God can demonstrate to them that their sinful behavior was destructive. It's a season for them to to heed the Holy Spirit. And and this is why we learned last week, whether it's in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, or here in 1 Timothy, in each situation, once a person is asked to leave, Or if they angrily depart on their own, we don't interfere going forward. We don't keep in touch. We don't meet them for coffee and and hear them out and let them cry on our shoulder. Tell them how we feel their pain. Um, Tell them, you know, well, you know, I think the leadership of the church could have been a little nicer too. You know, we don't know all the circumstances. When someone finally leaves, we don't know what all has happened. We haven't been in all the conversations. Especially if it goes to the point where the church leadership has to ask someone to leave, you haven't been privy to all those conversations. All you're hearing is one side. All you're hearing is one side. And again, we're not talking about, as I said last week, people who politely leave the church. They have a doctrinal... uh, difference. They say, you know what? This, I just don't think this is a great home for me. I'm going to move on. And they politely leave and we remain friends and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who throw up their fists against the church and against church leadership. They're blasphemers. And, and much of the time, the expulsion, it doesn't even come at the hands of the elders. Often it doesn't. By the time Hymenaeus types are asked to come in and even talk with us, most of the time they won't. Most of the time they won't, um, usually because they don't have a defensible case. Usually what they've gotten all angry about, there's really no substance to it, so they won't come in and talk because they know they don't have anything to, to, that's defensible. They don't have a legitimate complaint. They're unwilling to come to the pastors sometimes and talk about it. This is in every church. I'm not talking exclusively here. They're unwilling to come talk, and, and they just want to stir things up because they didn't get their way. And that's when I'd ask. If this ever happens, I pray it doesn't, That there's not a discipline situation, take a look around. Take a look around at worship. Take a look around at what's going on, what you know, who you know. Are things that horrible? When that situation comes, are things... Is Gerald's worship music that horrible? No! Are things that bad? Is the church... Functioning that horrible where someone should just be throwing up their fists against the church. I don't see it. I don't see it. And, and, and generally in a church, things aren't that bad. It's generally people just don't get their way. So they get angry about it. They don't get to do what they want to do or act how they want to act. Uh, they just leave in anger. But, but when a person leaves due to discipline, if it goes that far, or, or in an angry huff... More often the principle is to just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. Cuz by that point they won't come to the church. They won't return to the church because of what they said most of the time. They won't meet with the pastors most of the time. It's really not our prerogative to go to them and listen to their distorted one-sided facts. Scripture says leave them alone. We don't need to allow their one-sided, inaccurate gossip to creep back into the church through us. Allow the Holy Spirit a season to convict them so they might realize they've made a mistake and be restored. That's the position. Gerald and I listened to Alistair Begg quite a bit. I wasn't going to add this in, but it's fitting. Alistair Begg said... And this is a great preacher. If you've never heard him online, Alistair Begg is just an outstanding preacher. got a, uh, a really great church up in Cleveland, Ohio. But he gets railed against. You'll hear him online. And, and he, even some of the best get railed against. You, you talk to John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll and these people. That's why the, I titled this. They're in every church. They're everywhere. And, and Alistair Begg just says, You know what? You want to leave? Let him leave. You'll be back. He said, where else are you going to find a loving congregation that's devoted to His Word in the way we are, where you have the friendship and the relations that you do here? Leave them alone. Allow them to come back. Allow them to come back. Um, give them a season. Don't just agree with their, what they've done. Give them a season. Say, you know, are you sure? That's what you want to do. you sure you don't want to come back? Things aren't that bad here. Worship music's pretty good. I like it. It's really good today. Well, final thing I want to encourage you with, with that and note, every church has them. Every church has these situations. Every church has an Hymenaeus or Alexander type at one time or another. They, they want to stir things up, stand against the church, stand against leadership. Um, to them, nothing's ever right. Um, so when a situation arises, I pray it doesn't. I pray we go the next five years without ever having to do any form of discipline. But if it arises, don't get get distraught. Don't get distraught over it because it's going to happen. It happens virtually in every church. You know, there's this false notion that goes around out here that a church should never have disruptions, should never have discontent, should never have arguments, should never have disagreements, or should never be contentions. In fact, some would say, you know, we should all just back off our doctrinal positions and go along to get along. No. No, we don't do that. Um, But supposedly, according to some, God would never expect any discontent or, or antagonism to develop in a local church. To come to that conclusion, I don't know what version of the Bible you're reading. To be very honest... Virtually every leader, apostle, prophet, elder, judge, essentially every church in the Bible experienced contention and encountered disputes, false teachers, all the bad stuff. Everywhere there were, there were problems. If it happened to Paul and Peter and Timothy and John, you can be sure at some point it's going to happen to us. Hopefully not for a long time. But when that, when that happens, don't think that we're a failure as a church. Don't think that there's something that hasn't hit every other church out there. Um, we're not just going to uh, uh, try to put everything under the carpet and, and try to keep everything soft so nobody disagrees on everything. That never works. You can't just be some kind of theological soup that everybody sips. It doesn't work. I can tell Ruth loved that. Yeah, you, we can't just be some kind of soup that has a little bit of everything in it. That, that's, the church can't exist that way. You can't appeal to everyone. You can't satisfy everyone. Eventually someone's going to be unhappy. It happens. Uh, one of the ways, I, I think the easiest way to try to avoid some of these situations, leadership, Nathan and I, Gerald others on the board, we've talked about this quite a bit. let just, just be really clear about who we are. Let's not hide who we are, where we stand doctrinally. Let's just preach it as we preach it. Let's stand with our convictions. Um, if someone comes, we want them to know who we are. We don't want them to stay to stay around two or three years and then find out who we are. Then they're upset. Well, I didn't know this. Now they're all mad. No, we will just want to be clear who we are. And some of these things are that we are. We're theologically conservative in this church. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. That it that it's not vague, that you can interpret it, that you can understand it, that God actually expected us to govern our lives by it. It's not that hard, it's not that you know there's fourteen different interpretations to each passage. That that's just garbage, it's not true. We're evangelistically minded. We're people who want to go out to the community and win others to Christ. Uh, we believe the Bible is very clear on traditional marriage, no doubt about that. One man, one woman. We believe in worship, according to Colossians three sixteen. It's to be theologically rich, and it's supposed to teach and admonish us in God's Word. That's what it's supposed to do. And, and Pastor Weiler does a great job of that, as I've mentioned. Every once in a while, it's even going to make you tear up. You know, you'll get emotional over it. But worship is not designed to appeal to the emotions. It's designed to be appeal to the spirit. And sometimes it will cause you to feel emotions. We are a Christian church set apart for God's purposes. We are a spiritual sanctuary from the world around us, from the evil around us. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. None of us are. We know who is Jesus Christ so if you are a, a recent new visitor, you someone who's, who's come in, maybe been here a couple times, if you've never understood who Christ is, or if you just want to meet Gerald or I, we will be up here after the service. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Why it was necessary for God's Son to come and live as a man, to bear the sin of many, and to rise from the grave. If you don't understand that, that you are a sinner and needing to be reconciled to Jesus Christ, please come up. And speak to Gerald or I after the service, and we'll help direct you in that. Also would love to meet you if you're new, or even if you're old and you' got a question. Come on up. Let's pray. Lord, we know, we know that no one really likes contention, Lord. And it had to have been a horrible situation, dear God, for Timothy to, to have to deal with what had gone down there, Lord, which you know all the specifics of that. But we do pray for harmony, Lord. We do pray for, for our love to be shown, Lord, but not just through always endless compromise. Lord, thank you for giving us a, a church that stands on convictions that are biblical. Lord, uh, we stand on, on uh, theology that is sound. Lord, thank you for bringing us together here and, and helping us to encourage one another with the word that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, even when we have minor disagreements, we love one another. Lord, thank you for this church, the way you've blessed us in so many ways. Thank you for Gerald. Thank you for all the servants here, Lord, doing so many different things. We're blessed today. Lord, as I pray, as we, as we depart, that uh, we'll be encouraged, that we will uh, sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, Lord, and that we'll live lives that are, that are pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.